0: We live in a time spent economy. Things are competing for your time, and we obviously, you can always get more money, but you can't get more time. So time is the finite resource that we all share, and there's it's the ultimate neutral, um, you know, flat leveling leveling playing field uh, that we all uh, have to operate on. And if you have companies competing for that, you're going to end up with these problems. We're the the resource that is being strip mined into our you know our cognition, and and that means that we're worth more if we're addicted, distracted outraged, narcissistic, attention seeking, polarized and disinformed than if we're a thriving citizen or a healthy growing child who's, you know, living their lives in the way that we want. And I think this speaks to some of your work, Andrew, because it's about dignity. It's about, are we the product where we're just a cog in the economy or do we fundamentally have dignity? And can we have a system that treats each of us with a kind of sacred dignity That that it should work that way?
1: Yeah, it's about do we work for the economy or does the economy work for us? Uh, You know, are we worth more outrage than calm? It's like, well, maybe I'd still prefer to be calm even if I'm worth more uh, outraged. Uh, You know, we have to see to it that we're not all just instruments of uh, profit and revenue maximization because it turns out uh, maximizing our profitability is really bad for us.
2: Live, Welcome back, Andrew. Recording this on Thursday morning. You guys are getting this on your Monday. Andrew just had a late night after the VP debate. Uh, it won't be timely um, when you guys hear this, but um, unless something breaks over the weekend, we'll, we'll hop in. But j- Andrew, just quick vice presidential debate thoughts. How do you think it went from your perspective in the studio?
1: I thought that it was a great night for Kamala and the Dems because you didn't have some race uh changing moment, um, which really was the mission uh you know if you look up where things are trending very very strongly towards uh, Joe and Kamala and so you just didn't want to do anything to change that, that. right now the the news that's come out today is whether or not and by Monday who knows um whether there'll be a next debate um where the debate commissions <laughs> have come out and said that uh, hey it should be virtual um uh, so the, they're suggesting that it's going to be virtual, from the same building, like they're going to stick them in studios in the same concert hall in Miami. Uh, and then Trump immediately said, I'm not doing virtual. Uh, and so that's where it is. So there might not be a next debate. Uh, and then when I, I posted that story saying like, hey, you know, not un- unsure what the next debate looks like, someone immediately responded to my thread. We know that's not why trump is de- declining or it's like someone suggested that he might still be um suffering some ill effects uh so Oof. uh regardless of what you think the uh in the catalyst i i take everything at face value where like i don't think joe wants to trump uh, debate someone who has covid like you know which makes sense i mean you know joe joe's in a high risk population and there are a lot of strange contacts that that are ha- happening um backstage where like trump would come in with you know a massive coterie of people into the building like joe has a massive coterie of building uh, coterie yeah. of people so like it, it's very hard to um to control for everything so joe's like hey don't want to debate uh trump
2: if he's got covid and doctors say this is not a good idea so the next debate is scheduled for the 15th that's this thursday guys um i agree with you i don't think it's fair to subject one candidate to covid you know what i'm saying i don't think it's a fair thing you have to debate that person that has pandemic level contagiousness um (laughs) uh so virtual makes sense uh trump might and also if trump is sick i think it's also fair to reschedule like you know like the, the human element of this like um whether it's his fault or not
1: that would be a fine place to land because then um doctors could then uh be uh, 100% confident that Trump is non-contagious and you know just delay it that like a lot of Americans think that's a good idea um i i do not know how this is going to play out but i uh, you know it's uh the, 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 none of this is good for Trump um because they need a game changer and all of the game changers are getting are negative <laughs> you know let's <laughs> say like it's a negative game changer again uh yeah, so so that that's where that that's like the way I'd frame the VP debate is that if you're looking for a game changer uh, there wasn't one.
2: Yeah. Um I agree I thought I mean it's kind of boring um in some ways um which some have told me like that's what the, uh presidential debates used to always be. Um so maybe we you know we're, we're accustomed to crazy political theater now.
1: Um, well, well, there there was an important element of it, too, where, like, I, I thought Pence was a com- convincing messenger for another version of uh, reality, uh, because he had like a measured manner that made it seem like everything he was saying is um, reasonable, uh, yes. even if some of it, you know, was, was less so. And, and so I think that is what we're used to from these debates. But there's a quote that um, I thought was really important um, because... Uh, it it spoke to a lot of people. And this is from a a Politico article uh, from the last couple of days. It said, um, quote, America has entered a kind of postmodern political era where the appearance of governing is just as politically powerful as actual governing because most Mm -hmm. people, most Americans now live in partisan spin bubbles that insulate them from the facts on the ground. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so at this point, you have uh, the parties." Mm -hmm presenting their own versions of reality and then we just argue it's like hey i think that version of reality is real no i think this it. version of reality is real uh and, and that's disastrous you know it's like uh, uh, you have to have some objective reality that we can all look at and say yeah you know you did a terrible job you did a great job instead of just being like no uh you know i did a great job <laughs> and then it's gonna get worse and worse because you have the partisanship um, shooting up because of the fact that people are getting news from different sources and social media, which we're going to talk about with Tristan uh, Harris a little bit later um, uh, on. Uh, and then you have the eventual proliferation of deep fakes, which right. uh, is going to make versions of reality all the more um, individual and powerful. So the the fact that we have people debating and not actually confronting facts it's like the moderator almost should be able to just lay down the law and be like "Look, here's some facts like please you know it's like dispute like do not whatever yeah don't dispute them do, it's like do, oh, yeah. this just have like a, a, a factual convo um and, and right now that's you know not it's a very tall order for any moderator um because like uh pence and and kamala if you're a pro you just really just go towards whatever version of reality you're trying to
2: present yeah so that, that was actually what I wanted to ask you. I thought it'd be interesting. So, and it relates to what you were talking about with Tristan Harris, who's our guest on this show today. The bubble effect of these debates. So I I try to, I follow a lot of conservative accounts and then of course a whole bunch of liberal accounts to try to get the perspectives. And that, that gives me some extremes. I don't love it, but it's the best I try to do. Um, the liberals are saying Kamala dominated. Um, they said that Pence was mansplaining and that, you know, they love the excuse me, I'm speaking line. Um, and I do think objectively she, she hit him pretty hard on COVID. I thought she had some really good points there from me. Um, but the conservatives say that Pence dominated. And like, Kamala, you're entitled to your own opinion, but not entitled to your own facts. Um, he was cool, calm, collected. He spun Trump. He was a better spinner than Trump in his own way. Um, and and I thought, from my opinion, I, I thought Pence was, was good. He was, you know, I didn't love what he had to say, but I thought he was a very good debater. And it reminds me of... Like I don't remember if you mem I don't know if you remember Bit- Mitt Romney saying, um, I had binders full of women and he meant binders full of women applicants for, you know, various positions in his companies, and the Republicans thought this was like no big deal, and the Democrats were like, This is outrageous, what an idiot And it's like you watch this thing and you you take what you want to based on what you're rooting for. And so my question for you, Andrew, is this like political fandom where you're like, I'm a Jets fan, so no matter who they're if they're playing the patriots i'll always hate the patriots and no matter what information goes the other way or is it because you're in the social media bubble like is it both like what do you i feel like both sides thought they won and that probably can't be true i don't know what you think but it feels like fandom to me
1: the the evaluation of who won a debate is um purely subjective so you know if if you lined up millions of Americans and they all say one person won the person won you can't be like well all those people are wrong <laughs> you know um, it's it's one reason why they show the poll after um, but to your point uh, there's something very um, pervasive going on where uh, political parties and candidates have their own, codes and moral symbols and language and you could do something that would be incredibly offensive to one camp that another camp would find totally benign uh and um that's gotten worse uh you know the the book the righteous mind that also is tied to what um Tristan talks about in his work we talked about this a bit with uh Matt Jones last week where uh, conservatives speak uh, along a, a different set of moral um, values, uh, which include sanctity, loyalty, and authority at a higher level than um, the left, uh, liberals and progressives. So uh, if you say something that suggests like a particular hierarchical arrangement... Um, conservatives would be like, sure, whatever, <laughs> you know? yep. and, and then liberals will, will will be like, oh, that's really obje- like offensive, and I'm <laughs> mad about it. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, so like I I think that's going to be something we continuously struggle with, um, uh, because that polarization is
2: getting stronger. Yep. So we're starting to get more and more passionate about democracy reform. This is my idea, Andrew. I think. We change the debate format um, and we need to we may want to lobby that is what is it? it's called the nonpartisan commission on presidential debates, whatever the hell it's called. Um, it seems to me the goal of the debates should be to educate voters. Right. Um, like that seems to be the only goal, like who's running and what do they stand for and where are they on the issues? So to me, this like two minute sizzle reel reality TV show back and forth theater is actually a disaster for that. So I, this is my idea. I think you do. You can put it on TV, but you do long-form podcast style where it's sitting down, two microphones. And I think you do it on topic. You say, okay, we get this one's on the economy and healthcare today. The only two things we're talking about. And you just go, go, go. And it's long form. There's no, like, even if there's interrupting, you have a longer period for stuff to breathe. So you actually have to have the convo. And then I think another fun twist would be letting the candidates or the parties pick the topics. Because I think it would be interesting and educational for topics that no one likes touching like abortion or Roe v. Wade or immigration or, um, you know, things that, um, various aspects of human rights and justice and George Floyd and things like that, I think would be fascinating to actually force the candidates to take that position publicly in long form. Um, and I think you'd see a lot of changing across parties. That's my thought. That's my idea. What do you think?
1: Uh, I love the idea of trying to change up the format. Um, and do things that are more asynchronous and innovative. There's an idea that I, I just um, uh, got from Lawrence Lessig around something called deliberative polling. Um, so here's Lawrence Lessig's argument. He says, look, right now if a pollster calls you up and says, what do you think about foreign policy? What do you think about, um, uh, about gun safety laws or whatnot? It's like we all mm-hmm. say something But sometimes we don't really know that much about an issue, but we're just going to throw down and, you know, express our opinion because that that's just, you know, like how polling works. And his argument is like, look, we're not experts on any of this stuff uh, and we don't have that much information. And the average American is not exactly like researching foreign policy and, you know, the daily. Uh, And so his argument was that you you do is you uh, bring together a group of people like the networks trying to do with these undecided swing voters. Um, You you bring together a group of people that are representative of the US population, uh, but then you actually give them a lot of time and information uh, about a particular topic where they they get points of view, they get both sides, they get, you know, like, and then they come out with like a judgment. And oftentimes that judgment is very, very consistent with what most of us would want, because there is like a sense of common sense that a lot of these deliberative polling bodies can generate um, mm-hmm. the, the the problem with the these the current format right now is you're essentially rewarding performers uh and then afterwards we're like ooh I, I like that performer I think that performer did great uh, you know and better and, performer
2: th- destroyed the other performer
1: <laughs> yeah like oh, that performer is so much better and, and like, that, <laughs>
2: like that like that there's He's something
1: fine. very um noxious about it uh, in, in a way it, it is, very american in the sense that like i think uh, you know america likes folks getting out and uh mm-hmm. kind of like a two people enter or one person leaves i <laughs> love that yeah we're into that stuff but uh but it, it, if the purpose is to educate people then it's tough because you know you, you'd actually go about it differently uh, but i think some kind of asynchronous long form let, let things breathe like uh, uh and Uh, changing up the format where it's not just um competing two-minute sound bites because you're dealing with people who are going to become optimized for that and like i i experienced that you know first time i showed up i was like all right i guess we're gonna talk about some stuff and then like after one debate was like okay i guess now we're we're going to um talk in 60 to 90 second modules and like you know it's like have you because you could see with um kamala and mike because they're both uh i don't know uh, mike pence at all but like that that we're that they're professionals and you saw them pivot to the they knew what they were doing both of them complete pros and it was i mean it was well done like i admired it i admired the craft but if you have people who are good uh at that then your learnings are limited
2: so i have two thoughts one was uh when you're talking about polling, like we the polls on universal basic income, like whether or not you like it or not, if you take the word government out or put it back in, like it changes drastically, right? Do you like to cash payments to help the people that work in America? People are like, Yes. Do you like cash payments for the government? People are like, no. Um, or various versions of that. Um so I agree with you, um, there's a probably way to fix the polling. And then this is gonna sound it might be un American to say this. In your in its own, you know, traditional sense, but we probably need to take the excitement and fun out of politics. Like we need to shorten it up, make it less sexy, like more boring, because these problems are long and complicated there. The problems are not sexy and fun. And we're putting these people out there that are, um, they're flashy, you know, and their job is to be flashy. And you said this a lot on the trail. You said, if I was a CEO, doing what I'm doing right now running a company I'd be the worst CEO ever and you watch those CEOs flame out all the time because they're all about themselves and they're all about the limelight and all about the like the next hot thing and it doesn't it's not affected to run of an organization
1: yeah no we we should just be like if you are running for president again you have a record in the rest of it like I feel like every media organization should just be playing the stats and being like here's where it was when you took over here's where it is now like you know like how are we doing and to just like have a have like, <laughs> like a but like what what are we evaluating these people on like the the problem right now is we're evaluating people on um, their performance ability the way they make us feel like uh you know the the way that the media amplifies particular um, messages and you know I'll I'll be the first to say it's like I'm more amenable to certain uh, messages than others you know I think like a lot of people are um but you know there's an objective reality that is decomposing around us you know like uh, and uh, like we have to start holding our leaders, accountable to the objective reality. Uh, there there was that piece in the New York Times recently that said, you know, America's 28th in uh, all of these major indicators like access to clean water and uh, maternal um, health and infant mortality uh, and life expectancy. You know, it's like America's, uh, that'd be a, a slogan is like America, like we're 28, you know, like like so, some of these numbers uh, are um appalling uh and you can very clearly see that we're we've developed a political system where those numbers can keep on backsliding and then like each camp is like yeah we're doing a great job you're terrible and being like oh you know there's a an author named philip howard that said something that i, I said on the trail he's like the parties are playing you lose i lose you lose i lose they're just passing the ball back and forth uh and meanwhile we're all losing like that's that's really the danger." Uh, and, you know, I'm I'm on board with, like, you know, uh, like most all of the Democratic uh, like priorities and policies in terms of um, trying to improve education. And uh, I think we need a Medicare for all and single parent health care. Like my, my policy prescriptions uh, line up more with the current Democratic Party. Um, but we're we we've devised a system that's going to make it very hard for anyone to govern and solve problems because that's not really how we're evaluating people.
2: We voted. We being the United States of America in 2016 voted for Donald, not because of his business acumen. He did not run. I mean, that was part of it, but that was not what like really got vetted in the media. It was his ability to message and talk about stuff. The president still has COVID. As of now, Thursday, October eighth, and recording this, there are thirty-five cases of COVID in the White House and growing. The new diagnosis every day. Um, And for context, that is more new cases this week than the entire country of Taiwan, uh, which has twenty-three million people and had eight new cases. Um, So that—that's what's happening in the United States right now. Um, Now there's a bunch of other countries. Some are not good on testing, but Taiwan is. Um, so that data is is pretty accurate. Um, and there's information coming out of the White House. Does Rudy Giuliani have it? No one knows. How bad is Trump? No one knows. So it's actually tough to know if that 35 number is 100% accurate. Um, this is my hot take. Get your shit together. Like, yes, on a human level, we don't want you to have COVID, but the real risk of COVID is how you spread it to others. Right, like that is the bigger problem, um, and you've got other people in the orbit getting it.
1: Well, in in case of the White House, in theory, they're doing very important work every day, and you know, like yes. I, I'm sure that that organization's yes. much less productive now because everyone's hiding from their boss who might have COVID, and you know, like, you know, so that they. Yes, they both, we need you to uh, you lead. Know, like, we need you to manage. Yeah, like you know, I and I mean, it's true for their campaign too. It's one reason why I think this is going to end up um, being. Uh, a landslide election frankly uh, is that you have a losing trump campaign that's had their chief messenger get covid uh, and then your campaign manager has covid too so he's quarantining like the entire team i'm sure is uh, limping around in terms of what they would need to do um, a few weeks before the election you're now getting swamped on the airwaves Uh, you know you're getting outspent Uh, i mean like aside from the fact that trump has pulled um, uh, away from some incredible uh, uh, like controversies and scrapes before and we're like, oh, like, you know, it, it's, it's like a movie villain where you're like, you know, you can't be sure that he's gone until like, you know, like he, he's like been like thrown off a cliff like 10 times or whatever. It's like, you know what I mean? Like the movie villain keeps coming back like yeah. the Terminator. Uh, Don, Donald Trump's like the political Terminator um, for a, a lot of people. <laughs> but it, But if you look up, uh if you look up you gotta know it's like look this thing's shaping up to be a landslide uh and uh, yeah. if, if i'm the democrats uh i'm investing in edge races where you're like what's that you know we traditionally lost that place by 10 points you might win it this time
2: <laughs> seriously <laughs> like, like you look at iowa right now holy crap
1: it's iowa it's texas it's south carolina it's alaska mm-hmm. it's montana uh it just goes on and on like you could just main i mean I, th- I think susan collins is on track to lose and you know so like that there's like a um there is a massive opportunity um where we're we're actually um uh, i think still kind of trying to shake off the trauma of 2016 and every day since then where everyone's like you know oh no like you know you can't be sure we're, we're going to beat this guy um I think right now, you know, you have to actually get greedy and look around the map and say like, okay, um, you know, the and we just endorsed a couple of candidates today, um, John Hoadley and Christy Smith, um, who are running for Congress uh, in Michigan in a very competitive part of California. You know, I'm actually surprised. There are a lot of freaking um, uh, red parts of California. Like they have very uphill climbs. Um, but given the uh, shape of this climate in 2020 do i think that a lot of dems are going to win in places that have not been friendly to them heck yes like we should be freaking piling in uh, you know like i mean the, the the wave is coming um and i i would have to say like th- this wave has been earned by the republicans it's like they, they've really done like a poor job of governing over this last period of time um and i, I think they're going to pay a price
2: they've done a number man and look when you run for office, there's a bunch of different options you have for messaging, right? You have the whole bunch, you, you, But you pick your, your focus, you pick your why, and you go with it. When there's a pandemic, that message gets picked for you, in my opinion. You got one. You know, you got one. When 9-11 happened, Bush was not out there talking about lowering taxes. He was talking about never forget, we come together, we support our first responders, like we bring this country together, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you're American um, first. And the message for Donald Trump when the pandemic happened was we come together and we beat this thing. He could have kept make America great again. Like he could have actually framed this in a healthy way. He didn't. He missed it. I don't think there's another option for him. He refuses to do it. Um,
1: they they um, didn't even pass freaking uh, a relief bill. I mean that yeah. that is just mind-boggling. It's like let's see. I'm the sitting president. I've got control over uh one of the houses of Congress. Every American knows we should have a relief bill. Every economist saying like we should have a relief bill, and we can't get it done. You know, like uh, that that's like uh, uh you know. I mean that, that stuff's unfathomable. You know, like I, I tweeted that it was fucking terrible when he announced it's like we're not doing this until after the election. It's like are you I, like yeah, and I, I tweeted that on behalf of the American people who are suffering. Um, but if, if you look at it objectively, like it, it, it's Donald Trump. I saw someone saying like, look, this is him essentially like uh, committing political suicide where he, he's looking up being like, and, you know, I could take credit for bailing people out. I could send people checks. I could do this thing. Uh, it would be both the right thing to do and the politically wise thing to do and democrats would get on board with it because democrats are not some people who'd be like Let, let's not do this even though we, we can all see it and they're not doing it so like this is the kind of misgovernance that uh, you know get, gets you uh, out in your ear by a, a wide margin
2: ridiculous he said no and then he tweeted yes and now he's saying no it's a hot mess and the market's going to shit um the federal reserve jerome powell literally head of the federal reserve said if we don't have a massive stimulus we're toast. Ah, oh, that's that's the problem. We go back and forth like talking heads all day and bitch about it. Or get fired up, but the reality is millions are suffering. The reality is your kids are gonna have a tough time getting a job in this economy. The reality is we have dark years ahead. Um, so to your point earlier, I think the Dems should go for blood as long as they're not like it's still seeing the ball into the glove in the states. They have to win. Like if you can flip Texas, do it. If you can flip something like, because that's a that's where the the change is needed in the actual governing two three years from now, you know. Yeah, I, so th- th- this um, people
1: don't like it when I do this, but whatever. Um, Like, uh, I I think Joe and Kamala are gonna win. Uh, I think that they're people going don't to like get... when you do that. Yeah, I know. I I, think, I don't even like when you do that.
2: <laughs> no, no one likes it, but whatever. I, I mean, I, I, whatever. I think it's what fine. Look, like, you don't do things for you know to please people. You know,
1: you're an honest guy. Yeah, i I you know just <laughs> say what I think. Yeah. Uh, so the, um, I think Dems are going to get uh, a lot of gains. Um, I think they're going to get the Senate. Um, I think they're going to control all, all branches of the government. And and here's like the major major challenge, is that can we do enough. So that we can actually start to reconstitute all of the uh, broken trust and the suffering, uh, and make it so that it's not that okay. Now we have the ball again, and things just continue to get worse, and uh, everything is uh, continuing to disintegrate. Um, and so that that to me is the real challenge at stake. I actually think this election is is done, um, uh, and you know, like the the question should be whether we win. Um, in places that that are not uh, dem friendly and, and whether or not we like what the size of the gains are, frankly. But uh, the real question is how do you govern? How do you actually solve problems? And Republicans have a lot to say about this too, because you know, you, you can still um, obstruct a lot, as we've seen in other other times. Um, but we need like a new New Deal level, reinvestment in the country and done the right way so it's not like hey we, we've created all these programs that um you maybe don't uh use or trust it's like, we, like it's one reason i'm so passionate about universal basic income or cash relief um is like if, if we get in there and we'd be like hey let's rebuild the country and here's um like a lifeline for you and your family that's the kind of thing that would um, help us come back in a genuine way, and get us all invested, and possibly even unify us and bring us together to a higher extent. Um, uh, th- that's the great hope um, and the great challenge, because we have not done a great job at this for years. It's why so many people are so pissed off and disaffected. Um, uh, and th- like the the thing that people have said over and over again, and you know, to the extent it was some extent, it was overstated. They were like, "Don't worry about Trump. Worry about what comes after Trump." Uh, it's that if if joe and kamala win and the dems win like i believe uh we will um like we have an opportunity a window to govern and rebuild uh and we have to max it out um to have a chance uh because a lot of the stuff that animated uh donald trump is just getting stronger frankly you know i mean like like what what animated trump is institutional distrust and dysfunction uh and that's shot up during this pandemic uh you know like mental health problems shot up uh like the people um adhering to conspiracy theories shot up uh you know and again we're going to talk to tristan about this um so so the the challenge that that's really to me like i i've already seen the ball into the glove in my mind zach and you're like to the point i mean i'm gonna work my ass off and like you know between now and election day and like the the rest of it um but my, my mind's already on like, okay, like, let's say we, we win, like, you know, what does the challenge truly look like? And can we rise to the occasion?
2: So I'll say this, um, two things. One, um, for those of you listen, I, I disagree with you that um, this is in the bag and mainly not because your data and your sense, I think I fund- fundamentally 100% agree with. It's just that to me, never count out Donald Trump and never count out the conservatives. I think they're better... Historically, way better at this than the Democrats are in terms of changing the game and flipping the script and um, finding ways to win. Um, I'd love to be proven wrong, and I will do everything to to be proven wrong. But I do I don't think it's it's over yet. But I I, I, I agree. I understand your point. Um, the second um, thing is where I talk about is you and I are very very aligned, which is right now you, myself, our organization our networks, we are doing what we can, everything we can to help Joe and Kamala win because that's, that is the first step to solving these problems, right? Um But after the election is going to be when we get back to the problem solving piece, whether that's in the administration or outside. Um, And that's where I think the real work is because to your point, if Joe and Kamala get in office and we have same old, same old, it's, it's I think Trump is just tip of the iceberg in terms of how bad it can get. You know, um, and I think that's kind of what you're saying. So, folks, vote. Look at me. I voted. You can see this. I went and I got a mail-in ballot. It's very safe. It's got my name on it. Fantastic. Um, Our name on the envelope, not the actual ballot, because that's private, but I just showed it to you. Um, but please vote. That's how we actually win. When you guys get out there and vote. Convince your friends to vote. Um, vote any way you can. They're all legit. Don't buy the, the fake narrative. We are good at, generally good particularly a mail-in voting in this country um so please vote um all right let's um Angel let's introduce tristan man this is gonna be uh this conversation this is the topic this is it
1: <laughs> yeah i you you know him i hope you know him so okay uh if you have not seen the netflix documentary the social dilemma please do see it watch it um, our guest watch Tr- it tristan harris is uh, one of the main reasons that documentary exists. You've hopefully Mm -hmm. heard of him. Uh, He's a design ethicist at Google after he uh, wrote an impassioned message about how what they're doing there like touches uh, millions and billions of people and they're not actually uh, uh, struggling with like what their design choices will mean. Um, And then he's taken that work to social media platforms, the the choices that we're making there, the fact it's corroding our democracy, our mental health. Um, so he started an organization called Time uh, Time Well Spent uh, to talk about how we can use technology better. And the Center for Humane Technology. Uh, I've been, I I said on the trail all the time that we need a new Department of the Attention Economy, and I'm going to ask Tristan to head it uh, because Tristan's one of the foremost thinkers about what technology is doing to us and our minds. Um, I also quoted him on the trail all the time when when he said that we have some of the smartest people in the country turning supercomputers into slot machines and dopamine delivery devices for uh, us and and our kids. Uh, And he's spot on about everything. Uh, He's such an important figure. Um, The world would be a darker place if we didn't have someone like Tristan fighting for humanity I'm yeah, thrilled to have light, him on. Yeah, yeah he, he is a source of light and knowledge. Um, please do watch the documentary. I'll probably talk about you know over and over again. But Social Dilemma, Tristan Harris, the founder of the Center for Humane
2: Technology. Andrew, did you see Facebook's response to the documentary? I did not. What do they say? I'm going to send you this shit. It's, it's so bad. Ah. Oh. It's like, they have like seven reasons why the social dilemma is bullshit. And the first one's like addiction, like Facebook builds a product to create value, not to be addictive Two, you are not the product. Facebook is funded by advertising so that it remains free for the people. What the fuck? It's outrageous. This thing is so my skin crawled because I don't think how you could watch a social dilemma and then hear Facebook's response, like Facebook's appropriate response. Like, hey, like. The goal phase would do this. We've got a little away from it. We're getting better, right? Like that to me would have been a better response. This is like a straight up denial. Whew! But yeah, we uh, Tristan Harris is the only. I mean, frankly, he Yang, you talked about this on the trail, but he brought this with the the documentary he's been working on. He brought this to light. He's like picking up the rock, and all the bugs are sc- are scattering. Like it's he is. This documentary should have ripple effects for the tide is the tide is turning, if you will, in DC and public opinion. Um, and he, he's a, he's a saint for doing it, frankly, because I don't think it's necessarily monetary helpful or helpful in his career. I think he becomes a bad guy in a lot of ways. So um pumped to have him Tristan Harris. It is my,
1: Pleasure and thrill to welcome to Yang Speaks, someone I consider a friend, uh, but more than that, he's a hero of mine in terms of explaining to folks how technology uh, is hurting us as well as helping us.
0: Tristan Harris, welcome to Yang Speaks. Tristan. (laughs) Andrew, thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you again. Um, I'm going to keep singing your praises for
1: a minute, Tristan. I'm going to keep singing your praises. (laughs) Hi, God. Design ethicist, founder of the Center for Humane Technology. You might have seen him in what, in my mind, was a groundbreaking and award-winning documentary, uh, The Social Dilemma, that's on Netflix. One of the most human people on earth. All right. Sorry, I'm going to do your introduction justice.
0: <laughs> it's really great to be here, Andrew. I've, I've always tell people, hopefully we will mention how we met, but um, you know, it's been just amazing to see your... Um, really authentic rise from you know what what I thought were humble beginnings when we first met at the TED conference in 2017, and I'm just blown away by what you've been able to accomplish. Um, and anyway, we'll get into all of it, but I'm I'm just just as happy to be here with you. Thank you. Uh,
1: you and I met several times uh, over the last number of years. There was TED. Uh, and then there was uh, an event in New York where Ariana Huffington was there um, and uh, uh, we reconnected. And then there was a house party in the Bay Area where, where, <laughs> where I was like, hey, it's just out of the kitchen. and yeah. like, uh, um, So it, it certainly felt like we were going to be working together <laughs> totally. in, in various ways. Uh, and there are so few people who really there's only one of you um uh, and i want um for people who don't know you that well and i know you must be a little bit tired of relating your background and how you came to to this uh this cause and this, this organization uh, but you became kind of a like a singular a voice of reason in silicon valley a number of years ago when you worked at google
0: yeah i mean uh so my background for those who who don't know um I actually, just to tell a slightly different story that I think relates to your experience, I used to be into tech entrepreneurship. Um, I had a small startup company. I was CEO of that company. It was called Apture. Uh, it was sort of a failure after five years. It, it got talent acquired by Google. Um, but I, I know the startup game. I know the thing that people who are building, engaging, attention-driven applications face um, when when you're an entrepreneur. And my friends in college uh, you know, I studied computer science at Stanford and was part of a lab called the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab. Um, I studied there with the founders of Instagram, especially Mike Krieger, uh, who and I who I was project partners with actually. And we originally were thinking of how we could apply persuasive technology for good, uh, which is, you know, we had this professor uh, BJ Fogg who would teach, you know, how do we apply the principles of persuasion to technology, and can we use it to help people. Live their dreams, live their goals. So work out more, floss more, whatever it would be. And um, Mike and I, the the founder of Instagram, built something called Send the Sunshine, which was the idea that if you knew two phones and you knew one of them was in a zip code that based on the weather forecast had five days in a row of bad weather, um, the other phone was in a good zip code with good weather, it would send a text message to the person with good weather to say, hey, your friend Tristan has bad weather. Do you want to send him some sunshine? So this was using persuasive technology to orchestrate more... I don't know, love or compassion or kindness for other people. And so we saw those tools, but then overall, as things progressed, I saw how more and more of my really well-intentioned friends got trapped in this kind of venture capital-driven um, viral growth, get maximum engagement, maximum time spent. And it become, became, as the phrase now is known, the race to the bottom of the brainstem, the race into the lizard brain to try to, to get people using their products. And it was through seeing that and being at Google that I sort of said something's wrong here and uh, I have to say first that Google is generous in I think creating a space for me to do some of that research where I became a design ethicist thinking about how do you ethically steer and design people's attention when you're playing with some very deep-seated psychological vulnerabilities. So you mean they didn't exactly hire you to be a design ethicist? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I arrived that well, through a sort of the secondary success of this presentation that was sounding the alarm about how we were really kind of like the the stewards, the moral stewards of the human collective consciousness that 2 billion people's minds are running through the kind of wiring diagram of how we create the attention economy you know through our choices like what how does a notification work how does a newsfeed work how do app store payouts work do you get paid the more you you know send you know teenagers to, to hospitals for depression or do you get paid based on you know subscription revenue based on people feeling that you're getting value from something so all of those mechanics were you know really part of how Google was positioned to try to be a federal reserve of the attention economy or kind of a, a government of the attention economy. But the critiques were obviously mar- much larger than Google. It was really about how how does this entire tech ecosystem work in the best interests of people, which is why I think it relates very much to your work. Like, how do we make this these systems, these economic systems really work for people?
1: Yeah, I feel like you and I are tackling uh, related problems of humanity that, that we are facing right now in 2020. I want to rewind a little bit further back, just because I, I find you to be such a fascinating figure. You grew up in... Um, the Bay Area to a single mom. Is that
0: right? Yeah, yeah. Um, grew up in San Francisco um, and went to a, a small um, school for for working parents. Um, I grew up just with my mother, not not with father. And uh, then we went and moved up to Santa Rosa to the countryside to live out uh, her dream of owning horses. And um, I had no one in my family who was interested in technology. I was the only one who was always on the computer and learning programming when I was about fifteen. And um, you know, didn't anticipate anything that would be. Happening now, certainly.
1: So you're the the geeky kid who's on the computer. You get into Stanford, which is not that far away. So I'm sure uh, you know you're excited about it. You get there, and it sounds like you were working on technologies to try and do something positive. That VJ Fogg persuasive technologies uh, class now legendary because it seems like half of the major uh, tech entrepreneurs of the the last generation all went through there. How was your time at Stanford and did people have a sense even then of uh, the
0: magnitude of both the changes and the companies that would spring from it? You know, when I was there, so I was there from 2002 to 2006. um, And, you know, I should say I was including with the founders of Instagram and several other of my friends who were, you know, really optimistic. We used to meet and wonder, like, what would be the ways that we would apply you know our computer science degrees towards social impact um, that's actually we used to gather every three weeks or so and sit in some hidden part of the stanford campus and brainstorm you know what what those projects might look like um, we supported each other um, we all had really positive intentions um, you know this is different i didn't know the people who started facebook although i remember when facebook landed on the stanford campus uh, when i was a sophomore in 2004 uh, and we saw, you know, the kind of arrival of photo tagging and the way that it sort of took over Stanford dorm room life. And that's actually what you see in the film, The Social Dilemma, is, um, you know, the how the features of photo tagging, which was this perfect sort of persuasive cocktail to keep people coming back to Facebook at that time, because it's basically tapping into, you know, one of the most ancient kind of um, uh, deep-seated human vulnerabilities, which is social approval hey, there's a photo, it's of you and someone else tagged you in this photo. Don't you want to see, obviously, if it's a good photo or not? And when they found that, that feature and it worked, it's like, let's dial that up like crazy and have everybody uploading photos and tagging each other all day long. And I'm sure the productivity of the entire Stanford class dropped by, you know, 20% or something like that. Um, you know, but we didn't really know, obviously, back then, any of this would lead to political polarization or mental health problems for kids or, you know, shred apart, you know, the fabric of our you know, information ecology and people believing in more conspiracies, these came about much later, I think, through people realizing where those incentives of uh, maximizing engagement and attention would take us.
1: Well, you certainly had very positive intentions because of the nature of the company you you founded uh, out of Stanford, Apture, and you were grinding away at that. Um, so it seems like we may have something in common where I started a company Uh, that did not work out. (laughs) I feel like like your company came a lot closer to get to working out and that certainly no one bought my little company uh, to employ us in the way that Google (laughs) bought your company. So can you tell us a little bit more about your entrepreneurial uh, arc with Apture? Because as someone who started a company myself, it was very, very hard. Um, It sounds like you had some ups and downs too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, I don't talk about this that much. Um, so Apsure, just so I explain what it was, um, uh, the phrase we came up with, it's it's like lighter fluid for sparks of curiosity. Uh, it was a, a, a service that um, when a publisher like The Economist or New York Times put it on their website, it would create this ability for a reader to get on the fly multimedia explanations about any topic. Um, first started out as a publisher tool. So we had like the climate change blog on the New York Times and um, several other sites, basically linking statistics or videos. So you would say, Hey, I, I want to. So how, how many of you
1: were there and did you like oh. uh, get a little bit of funding out of Stanford? Like when you decided to to launch this thing?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I was 22, I think when we started the company and I actually was living in Argentina, learning to dance tango and on the evenings, uh, working, um, on this startup from my, <laughs> from a cafe. Um, uh, but I, yeah, I mean, we, we had a few Stanford friends of mine in senior year uh, get together. We raised venture capital um, from um, actually we raised angel investing, uh, for angel invest, uh, investing money from uh, a couple fathers and friends of, of some other friends of mine from Stanford. And we got our first deal with The Washington Post. This is back in the heyday of people asking, what would the future of news and online context be? Uh, And the idea was, could we do something really different and radically new when it came to news online? In fact, it was about social impact. Like, for example, could you see the congressional voting record of every single politician while you were reading the New York Times and see the video that they gave uh, of the speech that they gave on the House or Senate floor um, right there in the article without leaving the page? And we actually built that. So on the Washington Post for a few years in 2007, 2008, you could click on any um, Congress member and then see their voting record and videos of them on the House or Senate floor uh, without even leaving that article. So we were really trying to create a kind of transparency and positive social impact and a a reifying of what would make democracy stronger. Um, Of course, and this is where the story turns, what what happened was that publishers like The Economist or New York Times or Washington Post would ask us, okay. We thought we wanted you to help, you know, give people these interesting features to learn about whatever they want. It ultimately, our our success metric for them was, did we increase the amount of time people spend on their website? And that's when it really hit me that my personal goal, which is more of a social impact, almost aesthetic or art-driven goal of, can we make, you know, democracy stronger or give people better information, was really a different thing than the business goal, which is about Maximizing engagement and attention even on news websites and the fact that I couldn't reconcile that in my own mind that every day I would kind of tell one story to our team of engineers. We were only about a 10-person company Um, You know, we would tell one story to them of we're we're trying to make the world You know more curious and help people learn about things But then there would be this other side of it, which was measuring our success on how much time we were getting people to spend and I tried to pretend for a long time that, that was the same thing. You know, just like at Facebook, like, we're making the world more open and connected. Yes, we are doing that. But we're also maximizing disengagement. And they seem really aligned, right? If one is happening, like I'm making the world more open and connected, then the other thing should be happening. People are spending more time. So it's easy to fool yourself into thinking that they're the same thing. And, you know, I don't think I've actually told this this story before, but it was through um, a set of other tech founders and I gathering for something we called Doubt Club, that I decided to basically cave in and, and just frankly you know, let Google acquire the company for parts um, because you know, it was hard to admit to myself that really we weren't going to go anywhere and that this was, this was something that we were going to be trapped in this attention game forever and there would be a limit to the kind of growth that we could get because we had to fight for every publisher that, that, um, that used our, our service on their website. So we started a group called Doubt Club where several founders, you know, realizing that when you're a tech founder, you can't really express, you know, doubts. It is a very
1: isolating thing being a founder because you're there and it's like you're telling your team, hey, we, we're going around the corner and you tell the investors, hey, we're going around the corner. <laughs> like There's no one like there's no founder that's going to be like, hey, guys, I actually have my doubts about this. Because one of the things that happens is that any doubt you have gets amplified and magnified tenfold for like anyone around you. I'll tell you, running for president was like that too. It's like you know, like like if the candidate starts evincing doubts, people will be like, "Wait a minute, I'm dedicating my career to like trying to get this person elected." What you know, so like you have to be freaking stoic and on top
0: of it at all times. Completely right. I mean, and that's that's the pressure as you're talking about. I mean, in any in many leadership roles, you know, there's no safe place to sort of say, "Man, I'm not sure if this is really." the right path? Or maybe this business model isn't, maybe we shouldn't exist even, you know, can you even think those thoughts or are those thoughts unaffordable to you? So this this group was really profound. We, we had several friends and the first rule about doubt club is don't talk about doubt club because definitely you know, you really, don't talk
1: about doubt club. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure. <laughs> we had to be
0: many, many, many of us, we knew each other's investors. And so if you're given a safe space to talk about, maybe this shouldn't exist, um, you know, you're not going to go off and you're going to keep that secret, obviously. So it was through that social support, though, that several of us ended up letting our companies become talent acquired. And what I mean by that really is acquired for, for parts. I mean, this was not a, a successful acquisition. Uh, and another person in that group ended up just shutting down their organization uh, and company. But again, I think what it really had us recognize is the internal conflicts and the kind of denial that we can face when we're sitting on top of something, you've raised millions of dollars, you've got 12 people working for you, you've got livelihoods that depend on you. Can you be really honest about when maybe the thing that got you here isn't what is really still happening, that that social purpose? And um, and that's when you know I think this started to turn for me. And I think that's what's at the root of when I look at many people in the tech industry. I don't see them as evil people. I see them as trapped by a set of incentives that I think now many of them also agree are true um, and this is just kind of the, the place we find ourselves
1: yeah you experience the incentives directly on two levels uh, with Apture. number one is uh, how does my company grow and get paid um, and that's related to how publishers grow and get paid and that's time spent on their website so that they can sell more advertising and then the the second set of incentives is um, if I'm in a leadership role in this organization, then what are my imperatives? What am I allowed to express and not express? And those two things are playing out at a gargantuan, almost unthinkable scale at a place like Facebook. Because for them, instead of being like, hey, I'm going to get an extra contract from a publisher, it's like, I'm going to get tens of billions of dollars if, if we just keep this thing going. And then if you're... A senior executive at facebook you're like okay i've got the biggest franchise in the history of the world um oh some people are telling me maybe i should examine my practices well let's see i have very very powerful incentives like pulling me this way and not really that way uh, so you lived it and i think you understand it more deeply as a result
0: well i think that's actually why andrew i think our our message um, I want to name. There's many more researchers in the community uh, who've been studying some of these problems, whether it's Doug Rushkoff or Sophia Nobel or others who focus on different aspects of these harms, and we're really build on the building on the work of those people. But I think the reason that when when our message came around that it really resonated with people inside the tech industry is it spoke in the in the vocabulary and language that they actually operate in, which is Do you have a metrics dashboard? Do you measure DAUs, daily active users? Do you you measure MAUs? Do you measure engagement time, time spent, Um, seven-day actives? We know the common metrics and design decisions and the kind of vocabulary that people on the inside use. So So I think when we spoke, it was the first time that I think people on the inside had to come to terms with the fundamental misalignment of incentives that I think people didn't want to look at. And I just want to name that because... You know, while I think we've been successful at that, we're building much on the insights of people who came before and have been critiquing these, these areas, whether it's Sherry Turkle or you know, more recently uh, Gene Twenge and Jonathan Haidt. There's, there's lots of great people who are doing the research and they're also in the film. Um, but uh, I think we've been successful because we've been speaking a language that makes it more universally understood um, for, for the masses. And that's why the film actually is so exciting because uh, I think having it received in 190 countries and in 30 languages... You know, being number one in India, number one in Lebanon recently, breaking records on on for documentaries on Netflix, I think it's created a a cultural moment, a global cultural awakening, um, akin to something like Inconvenient Truth or A Silent Spring, but for the toxic business models of uh, some of the tech companies.
1: It's so important. I am so uh, proud of you and whoever. Uh, busted their tails trying to get that movie into the world. And Netflix for taking it up and distributing it. Thank you, Netflix. <laughs> so, so so you have this tough uh, series of meetings at Doubt Club and you say, look, I think Apture is not going to, uh, to stand the test of time or grow the way I want it to. Um, so then to get yourself aqua hired for parts, uh, by Google, is that like an easy thing? Because, you know, you're a hyper talented guy. I'm sure some of your engineers are hyper talented. Is it like pick up the phone? Do you have, did you have friends at Google where you were like, Hey, like, let's get this conversation going. How, how does that work?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting um, question. Um, I didn't, I had some friends who were at Google, but I didn't know any of the leadership there. Um, certainly I think we were, you know what it was actually, I could tell you the story. Um, there was. Do you remember when Quora first launched? Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, Adam D'Angelo, who's the CTO of Quora, had um, started this question and answer site, which everybody now knows is called Quora. And there was the early community of Quora adopters. And one of the first questions that I think, I think it was Zuckerberg who asked the question on Quora. And it said, who are the most... Sorry, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. I'm just trying to give no, you a go story ahead. of what yeah, happened. Yeah. But um, Zuckerberg had posted, who's the what are the most talented companies and, and people that in Silicon Valley right now that most people don't appreciate? And there's obviously lots of left, you know questions and sorry, lots of answers to that post. But the one that people voted up the most was actually Apsure um, and, and our team. And so I think that post where we were highlighted as a uniquely talented group of people um, led to some conversations about acquisitions with Google. I came to know Sundar Pichai, who at the time was Uh, He's obviously now CEO of Google, but at the time he was um, head of Chrome and apps. And, um, you know, we started an acquisition process with a small competition. It was very challenging. I mean, actually, you know, these things take a long time and it was uh, really one of the most stressful and depressing periods of my life, to be honest, because (laughs) you have to admit that, you know, you've been working for six years incredibly hard and it's all just, you know, you're going to, we got eaten up by the Borg. I mean, our entire service and all the publishers and all the code and all the data and everything we had done got you know, you know, became, became ash, uh, once we got acquired. But, um, I think it did teach me some many valuable lessons and I think it created the foundation for the design ethics work that, that took us to, to now.
1: So you get absorbed by Google. They put you on which team? Uh, was it, um, Gmail? Or, yeah, they like, put us on, on the
0: Chrome and apps team, which then, so we started working on some advanced, like personal assistant type work. Um, and then that led to working with the Gmail team, uh, and I started looking at, I was working with the people who were designing the next version of Gmail. And, you know, I found myself in the room with, you know, the designers who manage this interface where people, I mean, you go to any internet cafe back before COVID and you see almost every laptop has this like Gmail page open, right? I mean, almost everywhere. Oh yeah, people, we all
1: know it, sure. We all know no, it. Like
0: people live in this space. It's a habitat. It's not just a product we use. It's a space we, we live and we work in. And given that importance, I thought to myself, you know, um, as we're designing the next version of this, this is an opportunity to really think about how this is an enormous source of stress in people's lives, you know? Um, it's funny because I think one of the responses to the film when I say in the film that I'm really addicted to my email, a lot of people don't understand that because email is sort of just junk mail for, for a lot of people. But coming from, I think, the, uh, the generation that, that you came from and that I came from, email is a central place where, especially at the time every now and then I would be getting, um, you know, big introductions to, to people who would help us advance the work. So it became my own slot machine to check, you know, did Daniel Kahneman, the head of, you know, the founder of behavioral economics, email me and that kind of thing. But that said, we you know, I was thinking about, uh, is Gmail really good for people? I was thinking about, you know, it, this is a pretty addictive, stressful place in people's lives. Could we reduce social expectations? Could you make it so that when you send an email, you could say, hey, I actually don't need a response for two weeks. Could we start to implement features that would reduce the addictiveness And, you know, there I am in the room and there's no other room in the world besides that Gmail design team room. And if I thought the (laughs) the room where it happened and I thought if there was any room where people would care about this, this would be the one. And I found to no disparagement of my colleagues who were working at the time. I just didn't find the conversation really as thoughtful as it needed to be given the consequences that we were having for like six hours or four hours of people's days. So first, how many people were in that room? Good question. I think probably somewhere between six to 10 people, usually, in those rooms.
1: Okay. How long were you at Google before uh, this this discussion is happening?
0: Um, So within about three months, we had joined the Gmail team, and we're starting to have those conversations. So pretty three to four months I was in there.
1: And then you sent out a now legendary deck around, hey, we should probably be thinking more deeply about the uh, choices we're making because they're about to influence billions of people over time. Uh, was was that um, just months after you joined Google?
0: Yeah, that was in January of, tw- of one year in. So it's basically one year into being at Google after trying to make it work with the Gmail team. You know, I really did. I, I really wanted to see us ship something that would make a dramatic positive impact in people's mental health around email and stress and notifications and attention and um, because it wasn't going anywhere and because overall, like other apps, whether it was Quora or Path or all the, you know, Instagram at the time, which was just, you know, blowing up, um, I was just disappointed in where are we as a tech industry heading? Like, what? Where have we lost our moral compass? Do we really care about what we're building and how it's impacting people? Or have we kind of forgotten, um, you know, that there's more to just capturing lots of attention and going getting virality? And so I, I started... Um, I went on a, a trip to the Santa Cruz Mountains with my um, one of my best friends, Aza Raskin, who um, his father, Jeff Raskin, invented the Macintosh project at Apple. And that's where we get our name um, in Humane for the Center for Humane Technology. Uh, Aza's father, Jeff, wrote a classic book called The Humane Interface, which is the foundation of some of our work. But Aza and I were in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And, um you know, connecting with nature and just being out there. And it just really struck me that I needed to go back and there needed to be something that was said about this. And the words came to me in that trip. And it was never before in history have a handful of technology designers who mostly look like, you know, hipster engineers in San Francisco between 25, 35 years old, mostly men, mostly white, um, you know, making decisions on behalf of a billion people was the number at the time. Now it's 3 billion people. Um, to show you the growth rate of how fast these things go. And the presentation included just a bunch of examples. You can actually find it online on uh, minimizedistraction.com. I think is where someone had leaked it and posted it. Uh, but it it used a bunch of examples of how technology tapping into our psychological vulnerabilities and the cost that it was having on kids, on mental health. And it ended up going viral. Um, I sent it to a few people uh, for feedback. And instead of the 10 people I sent it to exclusively, I came to work the next day and I had like a hundred emails about it. So I knew it had gone viral to many more people. And um, as the film, The Social Dilemma says, you know, it went up to Larry Page's office in several different meetings that day. And I think it created a moment of reckoning where we actually said, hey, can we do something about this? And I would host follow on lunches at Google, bringing people together from different teams to talk about it. But it was just hard to get a real coordinated action because the external global pressure from consumers or from the world or from governments just wasn't there. Um, And that's what's astonishing is to see where it is now, because compared to, you know, lunchroom meetings that I would book at a random part of the Google campus with, you know, 12 people showing up saying, how do we fix this Uh, to today, where you have, I think, something like 30 to 40 million people are going to have seen this film very soon in 190 countries. It feels like it's taken eight years to get to a point where we're going to be able to meaningfully change these incentives.
1: So this is 2012 that you uh, send this deck out and then it goes viral at Google? Yeah, 2012
0: to 2013, somewhere around there. Beginning, end of 2012, early 2013.
1: All right, let's call it uh, early 2013 then. Um, So when you send this deck out to your 10 contacts, um, were you concerned at all that this is going to make you seem like uh, someone who is not on board with like the, <laughs> like the general direction of, uh, development of, uh, the project you're on. I mean, you're relatively new to the company. It's an enormous company. Um, uh, and the rest of it, like, is there any concern that this is going to be bad for your career?
0: Yeah. Um, I'm glad you're bringing this up because it's easy to skim past this. Now I was, I actually had no idea how people were going to respond. I was prepared that, if I had gotten fired for some reason because of it, that I would be okay with that. So I, I had pre-committed that that was an okay thing, an okay outcome for me. Um, and I was, you know, I was actually really afraid to send it out, which is why it was surprised me when so many people, um, when it shared virally, I mean, you know, on Google uh, Slides, you can click on a presentation and it shows you in the top right-hand corner how many simultaneous viewers there are. And there was something like hundred and fifty, and then later that day, like four hundred simultaneous viewers. For, you know, in a ten thousand, you know, whatever it was, twenty thousand person company back then. So, uh, I did not expect to be. I'd never been in my life a person who went against the grain, who was highly disagreeable, who was trying to challenge things. I wasn't outspoken. It just struck me that no one was sufficiently paying attention to this, and it was too important not to. Um, so then uh, th- it sounds like the feedback was, by and
1: large, quite positive, so much so that they actually give you this new title and role saying, you're going to be our, co- our, our new design ethicist. You're going to tell us what's what. Um, so how how was that transition in role and how long were you in that role?
0: Yeah, so this is important. I There was a, a fellow at the Google Creative Lab in New York who had actually helped co-write to make the, the story all circular. He helped co-write the first Macintosh, uh, the famous Macintosh Super Bowl ad. If you remember the woman running down this, the streets and throwing the hammer and smashing the Big Brother screen, he had co-written that advertisement. Um, and uh, he had seen this presentation at Google and was really impressed by it. We connected on... Um, uh, this this book uh, that had really shaped him uh, by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, which is really, I think, entirely descriptive of exactly everything that's going wrong right now, that um, culture and our society would surrender to the forces of technology, and technology would, become t- would, would sub- start to subsume culture and remake culture in its image, and that we would be caught in this kind of race, not for attention, he didn't express it that way, but this race to make things amenable to how technology would want to see and shape the world, metrics like, you know, in this case, he was talking about SAT scores and predictive analytics for college admissions and things like that. But he didn't at the time know about a few years later, we'd have tech companies running by the metrics of time spent and engagement. And that book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, um, opens with this description that we were all watching out for the year 1984 when the form of dystopia and tyranny. In the form of Big Brother and the Orwellian vision of dystopia would would come to, you know, subsume society. And then luckily it didn't come to pass. We made it through 1984 and that didn't happen. But he says that there was always this second vision of dystopia that was the more subtle one that people don't remember as much, which is Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, where the tyranny is not of restricting access to information or censoring what you can or can't think, but instead um, bludgeoning people with a sea of irrelevance, with so much narcissism and egoism and passivity and informational um, overwhelm that people wouldn't know what's true uh, and they'd be amusing themselves to death. And this was the uh, book that um, this fellow at Google who offered to host me to work on this problem uh, and I connected on and then I started to become, I I didn't know what to call it, so we just said, let's call it design ethics. And no one had ever thought, how do you ethically design along the social psychological vulnerabilities of humanity and it became more of a research project for the first two years Um, and i tried changing various things within google we tried talking to the android team and changing things on chrome and how would we make smartphones work differently and talk to the app store teams about changing incentives but um i couldn't get anywhere and so about three years later um i decided to leave And uh, soon after that, I was on the Sam Harris podcast where um, you and I, I think both launched our careers in a certain sense. And Sam Harris, thank you. (laughs) Thanks to Sam. (laughs) That podcast was the kind of coming out moment for this work. And uh, Chris Anderson, who runs TED, emailed me a few days later, which was, I think, only three days before the TED conference and said, I need to get you to come to TED to do a TED talk on what you just shared on Sam's podcast. And um, I was actually about to fly to Czech Republic with uh, my mother, who was dying at the time, and this was the last time that we were going to take a trip abroad. And uh, I decided to, to go, but then cut my trip short, go to TED, had two days to prepare this first TED Talk on how technology controls a billion minds, and that's where I met you. Um, and I remember the moment it happened at the you know, the buffet table, I think, on that Friday. Um, and um, yeah, that was <laughs> it's a long time ago now. Well, I
1: I did not know what
0: the run up was too. You know,
1: for me, I was just blown away by your talk and was like, this that was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, um, so hearing like I didn't know about Sam and um, certainly not, um, uh, you know, your uh, abbreviating your trip with your mom. Um, so when you decide to leave Google, here's the thing. Google, famous for its food, famous for all this stuff. (laughs) You're hanging out there. You've got this design ethicist job and you're like, hey, Android, try and do something better. Hey, you know, like everyone, try and do something better. And you realize you're not making headway. I still feel like 99% of people would have been like just... Stay there forever. Do your thing because you're in like corporate womb. Like, you know, people respect you. Uh, you're still in the mothership. Um, so it's, it feels like a big decision to be like, all right, this is not working. It's time for me to go. Particularly when when you decided to leave, um, it didn't seem like it was clear what the next steps would be.
0: You know, it's so interesting, Andrew. I really appreciate you asking these questions. Uh, uh, it, that's exactly right. It did not at all feel clear. You know, leave, leave and go do what? Like how you're inside of the biggest, most influential company in the world. Um, that is probably one of the biggest surface areas for these problems showing up, which is all of Android, which actually has a majority of smartphone users around the world. In the US, obviously, it's more iPhone skewed. Um, why in the world would you leave that environment? And obviously be paid. I think uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb uh, wrote the line that the three most addictive things in the world are cocaine, heroin, and a monthly paycheck. Um, it's very hard to walk away from, you know, monthly security, uh, job security. And I, I really didn't know how we would ever change um, these problems. I, I, I remember feeling deep anxiety about what it would mean to leave and not and live off my savings, frankly, and figure out what, how how in the world, what do you do to sort of get people to care about something in a public stage? Um, And there was about a year and a half after that um, where nothing happened. Um, And it was when I think Trump got elected and the election took place and the conversation started happening about Russian manipulation of the elections. And I had seen certain things like this myself and had been part of A community of researchers who'd been tracking uh, some of those manipulations that I decided I had to jump in full steam into um, into this problem, even if I didn't know how we would I would get the, you know, get the attention it deserved. And the real big breakthrough there was the 60 Minutes piece in um, 2017 called The Addiction Code with Anderson Cooper. And that was the first, um, I think, major event where insiders from the tech industry were speaking out about it. And that's what led to Sam Harris. And that's what I think helped accelerate this conversation. It was Roger McNamee who wrote the book Zucked. And I did an interview. He was actually the, the person on Bloomberg uh, hosting. If you don't know, Roger McNamee wrote the book Zucked. He was an early investor Great in book. Facebook.
1: R- Roger is uh, very, very smart. And I-, I admired that book and his work.
0: Yeah, and and he was an early mentor to Mark Zuckerberg in the early days. He actually was brought in, as the opening chapter of the book Zucked says, to sort of convince Mark not to sell the company to, I think it was either Microsoft or Yahoo, and to instead that he had one of the biggest companies in the world on his hands. And so anyway, so Roger felt very similarly, but he was sitting there on the sidelines and hosting this show on Bloomberg TV. And after 60 minutes, I went on the show and he called me afterwards and said, do you need a wingman? And we set out to try to figure out, how do we start this conversation? And we were at TED together trying to figure out, could we build allies? And honestly, we had almost no one listening or paying attention. Uh, people were not really engaged. And it's taken just so long to get the kind of public conversation to, to, to match it now.
1: Yeah, they're paying attention now. So uh, so, so there's Sam Harris, TED. Um, I feel like there was a steady drumbeat um, of news and awareness jaron lanier is part of this i believe absolutely um uh but i will say that when you sent me a message saying hey great news netflix documentary social dilemma like it it was still like a pretty big um surprise to me and i know these movies take a while (laughs) So, so so how the heck did the resources behind the
0: social dilemma uh come about i feel like there must be some heroic filmmaker we owe a debt to Absolutely. So I just want to say also, I was just a you know primary subject in the film. Um, we didn't produce the film. I'm not making money from the film. A lot of people think you know they accuse this of I don't even know trying to make money off of talking about the problem, and this couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, uh, uh, but we so so the film was in the works for about three years, starting in 2017. In fact, m- many of the interviews that are of that I'm in that that I that are of me in the film were recorded in early 2018, late 2017, I think. So, um, you know, and they bear relevance to, to now. And I think it speaks to just how consistently these issues were going to appear in society. The filmmaker, Jeff Orlowski, uh, was actually at Stanford during the same years that I was there. We were both Apple campus representatives, <laughs> believe it or not. And uh, he had made two award-winning climate change films, one called Chasing Ice and another called Chasing Coral about, you know, the disappearance of coral and, and you know, the glaciers up in uh, the northern parts of the world. And we saw this as kind of a climate change of culture piece. Uh, he didn't really know about these problems. He'd been following, um, you know, some of my work, uh, having risen up in 2017. And we started talking about it. We had met the producers, uh, Lori David and uh, Heather Reisman, who we owe just incredible gratitude to through actually through Ariana Huffington, so who we also owe incredible gratitude to. And this film got off the ground. Um, and it took, like we said, about three years uh, for it to come out till now. And, you know, it was really important for us to have it come out before this election, because I think it's, possibly most consequential for our democracy. And we talk about a lot of harms, mental health of kids, talk about addiction, but I really think it's the breakdown of our shared information ecology and our ability to trust in shared sources of information and to walk away from, you know, a debate and see the same movie as opposed to different movies. Uh, I think this is the most existential aspect that the film really gets at is our, our shared reality is being torn apart like a paper shredder into three billion narrower and narrower uh, auto-programmed Truman shows where they are programmed to give us a more affirmation that you're right, the other side is wrong, and here's even more evidence of whichever you believe about controversial polarizing topics. And when you do that and you, you run that psychology opt, you know, I think of it like an optometrist who puts this pair of glasses on your eyes. And they put those glasses on us 10 years ago because we started looking out through the glasses of Facebook to see what is the world, what's really going on out there. And we've been wearing these, instead of farsighted or nearsighted glasses, we've been wearing these outrage sided glasses for about 10 years now. And again, not just Facebook, but, but the kind of Twitter you know, outrage machine, the YouTube outrage machine. And so we're 10 years into this deep psychology experiment that has become the new normal. And we don't... So it's not just about let's fix the platforms now. Let's also, what I hope the film does, is kind of rewind the clock and say if imagine if you wore this hypothetical outrage colored glasses so you walk into your kitchen and when, wherever you look it shows you something you could be outraged at like your spouse <laughs> left the dishes in it the sink and it coffee. highlights those yeah, that?
1: My coffee can, my coffee can wasn't there. Exactly. No, Your really coffee can, can is it. not
0: there and it's not even in the place you usually leave it. The dishes are out. It shows you who left the dishes out. When you look on the refrigerator handle, you see that someone sneezed on it because it, the glasses highlight the green, you know, microparticles of, of germs or something. So imagine you were wearing outrage colored glasses everywhere you looked and imagine you were wearing those glasses for 10 years. How would you feel and think and act and navigate in the world? if that was the construction and basis of your reality. And that's exactly what we've had with, I think, these social media platforms. Again, no one at Twitter, we both know Jack, you know, I think, intended for any of this to happen. It's just that this became this business model, and once the companies go public, they're, they're forced to be on this treadmill of keeping growth going, and growth is directly connected to time spent and engagement. Yeah, J- Jaron Lanier, when we talked, he said,
1: well, we looked up and said, it seems like advertising is like the best uh, best business model we could think of, but then taken to a multi-billion dollar extreme, it ends up having um, very uh, the negative incentives attached because it's like, okay, now I got to gin up engagement. And how am I going to gin up engagement? By making you outraged at something or af- afraid uh, or um, eager to blame someone else. Uh, so I agree with the your description of the problem, the magnitude of it. Um, simultaneously to the, this run up between 17 and uh, 2020, you also co-founded an organization, the Center for Humane Technology, that's trying to uh, make people more mindful. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what the the center's
0: goals are? Yeah. Um, so the Center for Humane and Technology... and there's also
1: time well spent.
0: You, I don't know which one you want to want to go into. Well, yeah. So the the original work was. Um, under the spotlight of, a, of, a, of an advocacy group called Time Well Spent. And the idea behind this was from the, a continuity of the first TED Talk that I, that I gave in 2013 or something like that, which was about the idea that we live in a time-spent economy, that things are competing for your time. And we obviously, you can always get more money, but you can't get more time. So time is the finite resource that we all share. And there's, it's the ultimate neutral, um, you know, flat leveling, leveling playing field uh, that we all uh, have to operate on. And if you have companies competing for that, you're going to end up with these problems. And we said, the answer is, imagine a world where technology competes to help us spend time well. Um, and they're competing on the, on the basis of that finite resource to direct it in the places that we would say align with our own values. That work was important and became you know, the first stage of, this, of all of this. But it didn't capture the, the vast like polarizing conspiracy theories, other kinds of effects that were really at the heart of this. And we needed a new instantiation and, a, frankly, a, a real funded nonprofit vehicle to do this work. So Roger McNamee, uh, Randy Fernando, um, Andy, uh, sorry, Aza Raskin, my, my co-founder, co-founders of the Center for Humane Technology, put together this group and we actually partnered with Common Sense Media at the beginning. Um, And Common Sense Media, for those who don't know, is an advocacy organization who focuses on the issues of uh, kids and screen time and privacy related issues. And we really partnered up to do advocacy in California state legislature. We did a conference in DC called the Truth About Tech Conference. um, And we've done a bunch of uh, media and started making noise about these problems. Uh, and since then, you know, the center is really focused on realigning technology's incentives with humanity's best interests, um, simply put, because the, the fundamental incentives of um, these large dominant platforms are directly profiting from conspiracy theories, polarization, breakdown of mental health. The more addicted your kids are, the more anxious they are. Uh, not that, again, anyone wants this to happen. The line in the film that I think describes it best, that Justin Rosenstein says, who invented the like button is so long as a whale is worth more dead than alive and a tree is worth more as lumber than as a tree and we don't regulate private forests or protect you know st- state, state forests now we're the whale we're the tree we're the, the resource that is being strip mined into our you know our cognition and and that means that we're worth more if we're addicted distracted outraged narcissistic attention seeking polarized and disinformed than if we're a thriving citizen or a healthy growing child who's, you know, living their lives in the way that we want. And I think this speaks to some of your work, Andrew, because it's about dignity. It's about are we the product where we're just a cog in the economy or do we fundamentally have dignity? And can we have a system that treats each of us with a kind of sacred dignity that, that it should work that way?
1: Yeah, it's about, do we work for the economy or does the economy work for us? Uh, You know, are we worth more outrage than calm? It's like, well, maybe I'd still prefer to be calm even if I'm worth more uh, outraged. Uh, You know, we have to see to it that we're not all just instruments of uh, profit and revenue maximization because it turns out uh, maximizing our profitability is really bad for us. (laughs) It means that we're... We're very, very pissed off and ready to uh, click and act and um, watch whatever videos you wanna serve to us at at any moment in time. It's great to give people this sense of what it took to get to this moment, uh, the social dilemma, the fact that now in large part because of you individually and all the people that um, have helped you and your work, uh, that the awareness about the nature of these problems is now higher than it's ever been. And if you look at polling around big tech, big tech has gone from can do no wrong to, whoa, like there's some real problems and excesses that we're going to have to figure out and get to the bottom of. Um, You can see that with the recent antitrust hearings and the rest of it, which is one angle. Um, To me, that's like fine, um but it's missing some of the fundamental problems it's like you know like pretending these tech companies are you know oil companies or steel companies whatever it's like not really doing the trick um so this is the the big um the big thing i want to pick your brain on so i'm uh, so full disclosure because this might entertain you people would i would say things on the trail like hey uh quoting you. Sometimes I attributed, sometimes I didn't. I knew you wouldn't care. (laughs) But I I would say we have some of the smartest engineers in the country turning supercomputers into dopamine delivery devices for our kids. And it's having a disastrous effect on uh, our mental health, teenage girls in particular, according to Jonathan Hayton and Gene Twenge's data. Um, And then every parent in Iowa, New Hampshire who heard this were like, yeah, because they, they see their kids getting. Uh, addicted to their screens and you know it's not great for their development and then they would turn to me and say what are we going to do about it And then I would say, you know what we're going to (laughs) do? And and, and here's where, I don't know if you said this, I said, as your president, I'm going to start a uh, department of the attention economy. And I'm going to have my friend Tristan Harris run it. (laughs) 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 Tristan has been, been trying to change the design decisions of these tech companies for years. Now, most of them, you know, just gave like, a oh, like, you know, Andrew knows someone specifically who, who has the right thinking on this. But, Uh, If we were to play that scenario out, what do we need to do to try and uh, humanize our technology and our use of it?
0: First, I just want to say a few things to what you shared. Um, Man, yeah. Well, I I just want to say I, I appreciate it so much that you, like with Universal Basic Income and like with other aspects of your platform, you, I think, have always prioritized a kind of public education in your work and um, trying to help people understand and elevate issues that are not being talked about, and using your presidential campaign to do that, I think that was amazing. You did that with UBI, and you've also been doing that with the attention economy. And um, you know, I think you helped make it even a bigger issue. And I just really want to say I really appreciated that that you you led the way uh, on on elevating it as as I think to its rightful position as one of the top issues facing society because it's underneath and exacerbating all the other issues.
1: It makes it impossible to solve any problems if we can't even agree on reality.
0: Exactly, exactly. And that's what we say in the film so clearly, is if we can't agree on reality, we can't solve any problem, whether it's climate change, poverty, or social justice and racism, or whatever we want to we want to deal with. So truth be told, this is not an easy thing to regulate. Um, it has to do with core business models. I do think we can look to ways that the climate movement thinks about an increasing over time tax... Um, to carbon, you know, to to carbon externality, setting a price on carbon, you know, so essentially, as we've talked about, um, this is an extractive economy, where instead of extracting oil out of the ground, and then producing, you know, climate change at a global level in the commons, depleting the environmental commons, and also eroding the, the life support systems of the planet, that's the fossil fuel economy. In this case, we have an extractive economy built on not just extracting human attention, but as we talked about in an earlier interview, we did, um, fracking for human attention because uh, we're worth more also when we're multitasking. Um, really quickly on that, we're worth more when you have a tablet, a phone, and your television up. And that triples the size of the attention economy because now you're paying attention to three things. So, <laughs> so and, dark. <laughs> but one one thing that very much like that, when you use the metaphor of fracking for attention, you start to see that we're selling, just like the financial crisis, thinner and thinner slices of human attention as if it's worth the same as valuable concentrated attention, but it's kind of junk attention, just like we're selling thinner and thinner credit default swap type, you know, junk instruments, financial instruments, and selling it as if it's this bigger thing and propping up this kind of inflated uh, advertising attention market. Um, so I think one, one thing we can do is we can correct for that inflation. Um, you know, I think there's one study from a couple years ago where Facebook was found to inflate the amount of advertising reporting that it did for um, their advertisers by 900%, meaning they exaggerated how much um, the viewership or clicks there was by 900%. So that's just like you know, a financial broker exaggerating the value of you know, a financial instrument by, by a lot. So we can kind of clean up um, comprehensively this systemically fragile uh, fragility creating system. So, much like you want to, you can't just say we're going to get completely off of oil in one year and carbon t- prices are going to be set to a million dollars a ton and we're going to move over. You set up a transition plan over 10 years. So, I think what we need is a transition plan from each company maximizing how much attention that they kind of extract to winding down how much co- commodification of human attention that we can do over time. Um, one model of this actually comes from. Uh, the way that we regulate energy companies. Because it used to be that PG&E or Con Edison or whatever your energy company is, they're a for-profit company, uh, theoretically they want you to use as much energy as possible. So leave the lights on, leave the faucets on, maximize your just wasting of energy and you're maximizing climate pollution you know, activity and behavior. They can even put those nests in your home and then maximize how much you use to like manipulate you into using the most. That would be a kind of dystopian reality.
1: Our, our, our recommended home temperature is 95 degrees. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and get you to
0: change it all the time. And, you know, um, anyway, so obviously that would be an extractive kind of business. And it's fundamentally misaligned with the commons because it, it accelerates climate change, etc. So we've dealt with this problem before. We actually have regulated utilities that um, set um, seasonal targets for how much money you can make as a, as a utility off of a certain amount of energy. So for example, if there's a seasonal availability of so much energy, it costs this much for this lower tiered usage, and then if you're a consumer and you use, let's say, beyond that amount, because it's a hot summer, they actually double charge you for that next phase of of energy that you're using, except those extra profits don't go into the the coffers of PG&E or Con Edison. They go into a public fund uh, that actually invests in the renewable energy infrastructure that we need. So that's a nice. I don't know if you wow. caught that, but It's a sort of a nice transition plan of. Hey,
1: oh, I oh I caught that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't no, I don't know how no, I explain no, these
0: things very well. You probably know these things better than I do, frankly. But
1: no, 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 no. So no, so so let me let me just try and walk through this just for fun. So let's say um, you and I are getting together, and we're part of the Department of Detention Economy, and we're like, all right, hey Facebook, here's a deal. Um, we, we find you um, excessively extractive <laughs> in terms of the amount of attention you're getting from folks. So step number one, stop exaggerating the amount of time we actually spend on you. That's that's number one. But number two, um, for every bit of attention you get beyond a certain period, let's call it like our uh, four plus for a teenager. Like, there's actually like some negative social value associated mm-hmm. with that. Um, so we're going to have you pay a penalty um, and then use that penalty then to fund some alternatives let's call it like little leagues <laughs> or, or, or whatever like we fund something that that would be like the anti um, Facebook um,
0: uh, type of countermeasure uh, is that more or less accurate? well I also want to say this is a tiny part of a probably a more comprehensive way of dealing with these problems but i think um there's an there's a part of it which is that we have to remove some of the perverse um incentives um yes. what you're what you're saying now reminds me of something i said when i went to the can con whatever you say uh, call it uh, pronounce it uh, advertising festival where um you know we were talking to the advertisers that fund all this activity and these mental health harms and said um You know, after there's a mental health crisis from kids and there's a loneliness crisis, someone's going to ask the question who paid for all of this to happen? And it's obviously these advertisers. And one of the things we proposed was imagine you just simply cannot make money from usage between, let's say, midnight and six in the morning if you're a tech company. That disincentivizes usage of um, sort of late night lonely use that's sort of the low willpower period. Of, of, of use. Now that's, that's definitely, I don't, again, I don't one... know
1: what you're talking about, Tristan. I have never done any low willpower t- tech, uh, social media use between those hours.
0: <laughs> I think, uh, you might, yeah, I think you, you are the superhuman willpower, uh, one among us that, that, that is <laughs> kidding. We've all done it, but it's, but I love that idea
1: so much where you cordon off a, a number of hours where you're like, look, extracting attention
0: in these hours is not, not a good thing. It's like treating a park, you know, those trees. Some of the trees we extract and we turn into lumber. Other trees we say this is part of a national park and they're for walking and exploring and, and enjoying, right? And it's like some of our attention can be maybe, you know, part of a, a system that obviously wants to commoditize it. But that's another thing is there's sort of a violation of turning alive humanness and alive human choice into these dead slabs of human behavior through behavior modification engines, right? So we, we turn like alive consciousness into this sort of deadened consciousness in which your behavior is more or less predictable, because we've taken what could be a free choice and turned it into an unconscious habit, which is a farm of kind of like dead lumber is to a tree what dead, you know, human behavior is to a live human being. There's many different aspects of this that I think we have to correct. I think what we need here is overall something more comprehensive, just like with the financial crisis. If you asked me, Andrew, and said, what's the one law that we pass that's going to fix all this? I like your approach that this is sort of an ongoing issue and that we need a cabinet-level department of the attention economy to uh, to deal with these problems.
1: Well, let's dig into the toolkit a little bit more because I'm already learning a ton from you. Um, so I, I love seeing it as something of a negative externality, like attention beyond a certain point, where you say, look, like I was thinking beyond our X um, is probably not a great thing for you. I love your saying, look, between midnight and six AM, probably terrible for, for for teenagers to be uh Facebooking it up or or, or whatnot. Like uh what uh,
0: just throw a few things out there like that also belong somewhere in like the consideration setter toolkit. Yeah, you know, we're gonna be publishing um some more on this on our website soon. I have some of it up here right now, but I think a more comprehensive approach is something like what we had for the financial crisis, where we had a comprehensively risk-creating system And we needed comprehensive Basel III reforms in Europe or the Dodd-Frank kind of reforms in the United States. I know there's some problems with that, but that's thematically what we would want to be going after. So we need protection for kids, privacy for people, transparency for platforms. You can imagine you get Section 230 protections for content, but not for amplification or recommendation systems. And in exchange for getting Section 230 protections, for those who don't know, it's what prevents, it's what enables platforms to not be liable for bad content on their platforms. But in exchange for that, there has to be transparency to the public and to many civil society groups to be able to say which things we want to measure about the use or, or um, prevalence of certain kinds of content so that we can actually do a better job of regulating them, because we don't even have transparency now about how bad is the teenage mental health problem? How many users beneath the age of 16 are using it between two and four in the morning? If we had transparency, we could actually make them report not to a board of directors, but to a board of the people based on these metrics that matter to us in a democratically governed society. That is enormous. So
1: modifying Section 230 in those ways would be huge, because in many ways, uh, that is these companies license to, uh, operate and print money. Really? That's right. Uh, you know, that. and this was written in 96 before any of these
0: companies even existed. Like we couldn't, so I'm sure they anticipated of... <laughs> YouTube and Facebook and TikTok. you know, many years later. Uh,
1: yeah. So we need to examine this license essentially. And what you're suggesting is a difference between, um, posting content, um, and then, uh, spreading advertising content or uh, messages or videos that there's some kind of commercial incentive attached to. Um, so that's a very that's a very interesting distinction. Um, the other interesting thing you're attaching to it is to say, look, we're going to give you this, and in some cases, this franchise is worth you know billions, even trillions of dollars. But in return, we get data. Well, they get real data about what the actual public harms are. Um, because if you compare this to a negative externality where you look at, you know, for example, with pollution, you look around and say, okay, there's a, a, you know, there are negative effects through climate change. In this one, we actually need the data that the social media companies have in order to measure um, a, a lot of the harms.
0: That's right. And so this is table stakes. This is not the thing that answers the problems. This is the sort of prerequisite for being able to do anything. A metaphor I often have, Andrew, since so you're using these climate change analogies, is it's like Facebook is like Exxon, but they're the Exxon of human anxiety, except they also don't just own the kind of you know, extraction of, of oil. They also own the entire satellite network that we have to observe and measure how much CO- CO2 and <laughs> methane. So they actually control the measurement of how bad the problem is. So this is ridiculous it's almost like it's you know if you take the monopoly conversation it's a vertically integrated company that owns both the measurement you know either the exclusive access to measurement of the harm and also the harm creation that's a vertically integrated perverse uh, sort of company um, there's also other aspects freedom from manipulation accountability for harms enabling more. Competition, we can dig into that because it's less about, as you said, magically breaking them up causes the removal of misinformation or addiction in society because you still have a race to the bottom to create those problems. Um, And then also national security because we haven't talked about that, that, you know, while we've been obsessed, you know, by some uh, folks um, and politicians of protecting our physical borders, we've been leaving our digital borders wide open. And this is really important, because if Russia or China try to fly a plane into the physical United States, where they try to get across the passport controls, we have huge billions of dollars invested in either shooting down that plane or stopping them at the border. But as soon as- And none as we- of us
1: would accept it. None of us would accept the fact that you have you have 70 countries right now that are- uh, investing in misinformation and everyone's like, oh, <laughs> you know, if you had 70 countries flying planes through our airspace, we'd all be like, what the heck is going on?
0: That's exactly right. And so, and so if you think about it as how much of the surface area of our, of our, of our country's activity is, happens in the physical world and how much of that surface area is moving into the virtual world of kind of Facebook, Instagram, clicks, advertising, email, etc., and more and more of our economic activity is moving from the physical to the digital, but we don't protect the digital borders. So if Russia and China try to fly an information plane into the virtual United States, instead of being met by the Pentagon to shoot it down, they're met by a Facebook algorithm with a white glove that says, yeah, exactly which zip code or minority group would you like to target with more divisive information that could stir up culture wars? So this is a urgent national security threat that we've been meaning to try to get you know, more into the agenda, because I think we don't. We massively underestimate the vulnerability of culture. You know, after World War II, you know, big powers like Russia, China, Iran, Turkey, they're not going to, um, you know, attack the United States with nuclear weapons anymore. They can't do kinetic warfare. And so what would you do? You would actually want to take the divisions in a country that already exist, walk over their virtual borders, and stir up culture wars and racial divides everywhere, which is exactly what we're seeing them doing. Um, We also know that Russia has gone after um, ex-U.S. veteran groups and trying to sow more discontent about, you know, uh, uh, the military. Oh, it's so dark. We know that that Russia is going after environmentalist groups. Um, In fact, they actually go after pro-environmentalist anti-fracking U.S. advocates like Greenpeace and and amplify them because what happens if in the U.S. we don't frack? We have to buy more foreign oil from where? From Russia. So there's many different aspects to this problem, but I think what people need to know is that this is in all of our interests. It's not a partisan issue. Um, It's really a a global issue and a national security issue that affects everyone.
1: So Tristan, if hypothetically I am part of the administration and I call you and say, hey, do you want to join the newly christened Department of the Attention Economy, and uh, clean this stuff up? Like, uh, are you game? Are we going to do this
0: thing? If, if we can make that happen, and there's a real opportunity um, in the next administration, I think I would have to strongly consider doing that.
1: Well, Tristan, you're a blessing to us all. The fact that you've been fighting this fight, in sometimes in relative pain and obscurity, uh, and now this is a moment when everyone can look at you and say, He's been onto something this whole time, just like your old colleagues at Google. who are like, hey, I didn't see it, but now I see it. We all see it now, which is the first big step towards solving a problem is acknowledging its existence. And now we have to solve it as quickly as possible because time is not on our side. And this stuff's getting nastier, more virulent. It's going to make it impossible for us to... This is the problem that if you don't
0: solve it, you can't solve anything else. That's right. But I do think the thing that gives me hope, Andrew is that you know what's what's been missing is the collective will of the people and public pressure and I wish I could show the world my inbox because I didn't even have an Instagram account that I hadn't used since 2000, 2012 and now suddenly I went from you know no followers or whatever to something like 50,000 I get messages from all around the world from people saying I'm ready to I'm ready to do everything I can this is too important everyone wants to solve this problem so I probably feel like you did where you're just getting messages from people around the country saying we got to solve it. And I know that's not enough. We have to actually translate it into meaningful action and political energy. But I think that the difference between this and climate change is unlike seeing the movie Inconvenient Truth and then saying, well, this is going to happen to my grandkids. If this is the climate change of culture and it's sort of a disaster for our social fabric, after seeing the movie, you turn to that glass slab in your pocket and you stare at it 80 more times that day. And you know that it's causing these problems. So I think that this really is the issue we can all unite around. And that gives me... An incredible hope, and I think, as you said, you know, awareness precedes the opportunity for choice. I think the question everyone can ask themselves is: instead of my attention being the commodity, we can also ask what what is worth our attention individually, and also what is worth our attention as a as a country. Um, because I think the current attention economy does not reflect you know what really matters to us.
1: None of us would choose this, that's for sure, Tristan, and we're going to have to actually decide what to choose. Uh, if we give ourselves that chance uh so so pumped to reconnect with you congratulations you. on on your organization and movement and documentary getting to this point point. and i'm thrilled to work with you because we got to solve these problems i you know one thing I, I i do get those messages and i appreciate the yang Gang and the love so much i you know we should maybe give a name for your gang um you know, we do need one actually Sarah. i don't know if it's the humane gang <laughs> Yeah, made Yeah, gag of humans. Whatever it is, um. But but the the challenge now, uh, just to give you like a uh, you know like at least my sense of things is what you just said is like look, you are the people, then you have this political energy, and then you have a political system that is not exactly super high functioning. <laughs> and, 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 and that's the thing, and then you have in this case, in your case, you have these six hundred fifty billion dollar companies or you know multi billion dollar companies who are like the biggest, richest, they're like almost countries unto themselves. Uh, and, and when they look up and see our national government, they do not think to themselves like, oh, like, um, you know, th- these people uh, know what's best for me and my business. Like, like I should really listen to them. <laughs> it, it, it's, more, it's more like, so, so the, this is like the popular energy is an enormous first step but activating our political machinery to actually like make these changes and bring some of these companies to the table. Um, popular zeal will help because a lot of the folks work at these companies, like you did a lot of the folks, obviously, you know, like have kids themselves or use the, the services. Um, but yeah, like the, the, the real fight is coming.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, uh, I think we actually have a lot of lessons to learn from probably people who used to formally work for you because we do need to build a movement on the back of, I think what the film is creating. Um, I think there's so much energy to change, but uh, we we have to channel it in the appropriate directions. Um, and I know there's some things coming up locally in California, the Consumer Privacy Act, um, Consumer Privacy Reform Rights Act, excuse me, um, and some, you know, more action in, in Europe. Uh, but I, I want to encourage people to really get involved, um, to, you know, educate yourself. We do have more resources on, on HumaneTech.com. Uh, but honestly, Andrew, I'd love to learn more as well about how do we activate a movement around this? Because it is how we see it. I think we have to organize a constituency that this is the issue that's beneath other issues.
1: Well, you and I are going to connect. Um, I'm going to text you and I want to be a resource to you in any way I can. Uh, um, if someone does want to get uh, energized around your movement, is it is humane tech.com the best place to go?
0: Yeah. Um, the best place to go is humane Um For those who want to know just how do they take control of the th- things and the effects that they saw in the film. There's a take control page. We also have a great podcast called Your Undivided Attention, where we interview many of the people who are in the film The Social Dilemma, but go in-depth on you know YouTube recommendations, go in-depth on Russian disinformation, go in-depth on the casino-like slot machine design of social media. Um, and that's a good place to educate yourself. And we're really working now on, on kind of mobilization. So how do we build those catchment systems that mobilize people? And I would, frankly, Andrew, I would really love to follow up with you about um, how you did that and who we could leverage from your movement to, to help us, because I think this, I think we can really get a, a large constituency that's also bipartisan too.
1: Done and done. We are at your disposal. Let's give it up for Tristan Harris. Tristan, thank you so much, brother. Appreciate it's such a pleasure to be Adam. here,
0: Andrew. I really, really appreciate what you've done. And um, I, I, I'm really excited to follow up. I really think this is so important. So thank you so much for having me on. Me too.